This is a Federal News Network podcast. Sometime in the distant past, Congress imposed a mandate on states to issue driver's licenses and other forms of identification tied to a stack of documents that would verify the IDs. One form of enforcement would be denial of boarding commercial aircraft until the passenger could produce a real ID. The latest deadline for enforcement was to have been this October. Now the Biden administration has pushed it back to May of 2023, citing the pandemic. For reaction, the legislative director for Homeland Security and Public Safety at the National Governors Association, Mary Catherine Ott. Ms. Ott, good to have you on. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. So is it fair to say that the governors and the states are thrilled about this deadline pushback? Not quite to 20 years, but we're getting there. Yeah, no, I think it definitely, especially in light of the pandemic, gives some breathing room to states and governors to execute these requirements of the act. Now, I spoke with the Ohio Registrar of Motor Vehicles a couple of months ago, just by coincidence, and he said that about 35 percent of drivers had a real ID, but that had slipped somewhat, not because people gave them up, but because in the pandemic, more drivers came in, fewer people could get into registries or DMVs, whatever you call them in a given state, and so that the percentage went down. What's your sense of what the national percentage is? Do you even know? Well, I don't have the specifics, and I know the Department of Homeland Security for at least the past year has been working with states and territories individually to get their percentage rates. So there's a back-end reporting to the department on that issue, but I would say from hearing from states, that is a huge concern and, and probably a trend across the states and territories of when you have DMV closures, when you have Department of Health closures, where you might need to go to get your birth certificate requirement, it makes it a lot more difficult for individuals to go in and get their real ID. And in a given state, does most of this burden actually fall on the motor vehicle registries or are there other departments that are involved? Not everyone in the world has a driver's license. Sure. Yeah, I would say probably the DMVs for the most part, because the in-person requirement means there's nowhere else you can go to do this. So there's probably some back-end paperwork individuals have to do in order to get the right documentation they have to bring. Sometimes individuals come in with the intent of getting their real ID and show up and realize they don't have a document. So that means you might have returned constituencies, which adds more to it. And then obviously in a pandemic environment, either closures or smaller hours for individuals means less people can get processed on any given day. But is it only driver's licenses that have to be real ID? Can there be another form of real ID that's not a driver's license? From a standpoint of real ID means that driver's license. So that context is specific to real ID. However, in the intent of either getting to federal facilities or getting on an airplane, which is probably going to impact individuals the most, passport uh, suffices. And I think that's one messaging point that if individuals have an active passport, that, hey, wait a little longer, use your passport to get on the airplane. And I think you can also use your global entry ID as well as a documentation to get on an airplane. Got it. So otherwise, it is the DMVs then that have been the main burden agency for all of this. Correct. And I, you know, I haven't looked into uh, Department of State and DHS might know this better, but I'm sure there's been an uptick in passport applications as well, potentially, maybe not during the pandemic, but leading into this. And it's possible we might see more of that with people being eager to go travel if they're vaccinated and kind of getting out of town. Well, I don't know about passport issuance, but they certainly have a big backlog that built up from applications during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the State Department is working that off right now, too. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with Mary Catherine Ott. She's legislative director for Homeland Security and Public Safety Issues at the National Governors Association. 
And so what will states do now that they have a much later deadline? Is that going to make them lax because no deadline has been met yet in these many years since Real ID was passed? What's their strategy here? Sure. And every state's probably going to address their challenges uniquely. That's the great thing about states and territories. They have different approaches in terms of how they execute federal law. The one big issue here, the one big thing that's going to help across the board is that the COVID package at the end of last year included what was called the Real ID Modernization Act, which basically brought the Real ID Act up into the 21st century. So if we think about in 2005, where technology was to 2021 and where technology is now, uh, is there and are there ways to improve the execution of this act? So individuals who might not have a social security card and now allows for other documentation with your social security number to be utilized when you show up at the DMV. Additionally, the Department of Homeland Security is implementing and doing proposed rulemaking to figure out is there technology for better kind of paperwork requirements and uploading paperwork, which if that happens, states have to then obviously purchase equipment or technology to actually execute that. So really this extension allows for real ID modernization to happen. It gives us uh, more time for states to both talk to the Department of Homeland Security to, to say, here are some techniques and approaches that we found that are successful to help individuals better be able to come into our DMVs and be able to get this. It also created the opportunity for the Department of Homeland Security to do a national campaign, so an education campaign. You think about real ID. Well, an individual who's not tracking this issue is going to say, I have a real ID. What does that mean? So now you have the opportunity, too, to educate people back in the states and territories to say, here are your requirements. Here's where you can go. Here's a link to your DMV in your state to understand what requirements you need and what documents you need to bring forward. And then probably critically, most importantly, is that, yes, after 16 years, there's still going to be individuals who are either in rural areas or more remote areas who are either not aware of this requirement or it's a challenge to get to your DMV, or it's a challenge to get your birth certificate, whatever requirements it might be. So you can tap into those constituencies a little bit more with more time. I know that Maryland last year had really implemented these mobile DMVs to get out to those rural and hard to reach individuals. So hopefully we'll see a little bit more of that. So all in all, it's kind of better technology, better implementation, and then better outreach and you mentioned a lot of paperwork that's needed, and so they would have to scan this stuff and make mm-hmm. it into a digital file and upload it. And there's many shapes and types of documents, so you can't just stick it in a regular scanner. And that gets to be complicated physically. Long term, is there any thought coming from any of the states or from DHS for doing this whole thing electronically so that you could have the equivalent of a derived credential, say, on a smart device that mm-hmm. would maybe a barcode or some kind of a thing? that you know the passenger manifest would have the database of people that are supposed to get on that plane so you don't query the whole country every time someone gets on a plane but then your smartphone would be the real id Sure. And I think, you know, that Real ID Modernization Act allows the Department of Homeland Security to explore that opportunity. So through usually through rulemaking is probably where we would see that and looking to modernizing that identity vetting system. So right now, again, the way that 
the department interpreted the law from 2005 through a 2007 regulation was that you had to be physically present. But some people might say, well, do you really need to do that? So now it's an opportunity to explore those technologies to find a way maybe to do more online work for it. And then additionally, it allows the department to look and explore the whole mobile driver's license you might see. Some states are moving to that right now. So that gets to your point in terms of if you have a smartphone or some sort of electronic device that would allow you to have that mobile driver's license. The act also allowed for the department to explore those options. Of course, I guess if you can lose a wallet, you can lose a phone too. (laughs) So you're right back where you started. But basically this pushback to May of 2023 then is seen as good by your constituents. Absolutely. And I I will fully admit we were prepared and starting the whole process as to whether or not the states needed to make that ask again. So kind of preempted our need to actually formally ask for another extension. But I think we all recognize the pandemic was a very unique circumstance. And when, as we mentioned already, if people can't get into their DMV, they're not going to be able to get their real ID. Saved by the virus. Mary Catherine Ott is Legislative Director for Homeland Security and Public Safety at the National Governors Association. Thanks so much for joining me. Great. Thank you so much. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff To Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke, he worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, 
What have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it, it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy, and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic 
uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor at the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care.